we begin the lesson tonight, may remind those who are involved in our Wednesday night teaching rotation uh, that uh, if you have not uh, uh, let me know, let us know that you're ready to go. Uh, whenever you're ready to go, let us know, and we're ready for you. Also, those who've already taught, um, just in case there's any misunderstanding about that, we certainly want you to go again and again and again. Uh, so... Um, as often as you would like, in those who volunteer. And uh, we've heard some very, very good comments about our Wednesday night uh, classes with the rotating teachers here in the auditorium from among our men. And as we've said, it is so encouraging to see how many men we have in the White Oak congregation uh, who are so capable of teaching uh, Bible lessons. And we, uh, we appreciate all of you very much. And if there are those who have not initially let us know that you'd like to be involved, but now would like to, please let us know that. We, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. So uh, if you would, uh, if you haven't turned in your sheet of the topic or uh, let us know what topic and what date you would like, please, uh, please keep that in mind and do that uh, for us. We appreciate that and appreciate you uh, so very, very much. We're continuing our study of uh, Philippians tonight with chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1 and going through verse 5. Paul's love letter is it is so often called to the church at Philippi because uh, he had a specially close relationship with this congregation. And I think that becomes very evident, very much so, in the first verse at which we look tonight, chapter 4, verse 1. Think about how many terms of endearment, if you will, there are an affection in this, uh, in this first verse of chapter 4. He writes, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, and then he repeats the word beloved. Beloved, beloved, between those two words, longed for. And that expression, longed for, was used by the Hebrews to, to indicate that for which they had a very deep and very strong attachment, a very strong desire for. And in this case, Paul uses it to express his desire to be with these brethren uh, whom he loved and called uh, beloved. But before we talk more about that, we go to the therefore, just to simply remind us of what it's there for, as we go back to the latter part of chapter 3. Remember that he had uh, written to them uh, in verse 17 to um, follow those who are walking as they should walk, as you have us for a pattern. And then by way of contrast, remember in verse 18, he wrote of those who are not walking as they should. In fact, he minced no words when he characterized them as enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Then he reminds them, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said, when he mentioned eagerly waiting for the Savior, he was not by any means uh, expressing any um, indication that he believed the Lord was coming back uh, in their lifetime. That was a misapprehension that some of the early Christians had, but there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the apostles 
uh, shared that misapprehension. In fact, there's evidence that they did not. The Apostle Paul, remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at verse 13 beginning, wrote to those uh, brethren who had that misapprehension that the Lord was coming back in their lifetime and because some of their uh, Christian brothers and sisters had died, their loved ones had died before he came, they were under the false impression that those uh, brethren who had died were going to lose their reward. Paul said, no, that is not the case. Whenever he comes, we'll all be raised, we'll meet him in the air, and so forth. So the Apostle Paul did not express any uh, false apprehension that he had, obviously, about the fact that the Lord, or the idea that the Lord was coming again soon. What he did teach, as well as all of the New Testament writers, by inspiration taught that the Lord could come at any time. And that is a message that certainly we need to take to heart in every generation, that it may not be in this generation. It may be a million years from now, but the Lord is going to come, and he's going to come at a time when man does not anticipate or expect it, therefore it behooves us to be prepared. We'll talk more about that when we come to verse 5 tonight because um, there is an expression there that has led some, obviously, to um, the conclusion that the Lord, at the time Paul wrote this letter, that he believed the Lord was coming soon. That is certainly not the case, and we'll see that when we come to verse 5. But we also talked about that, I believe, when we looked at verse 20, uh, last week, uh, or the last time we studied the, uh, the Philippian epistle, who will transform, verse 21 of chapter 3, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now we're back to the therefore. Therefore, because of the things that he had written in the closing verses of chapter uh, 3, those chapter headings being put there by man, and so there's a transition here, Therefore, my beloved, in light of the fact that we have our citizenship in heaven, in light of the fact that there are those whose end is destruction, but that does not characterize us, despite the fact that they have uh, in their minds earthly things, we have in our mind heavenly things, and we can anticipate a transformation from this lowly body, the body of our humiliation as it is sometimes translated, this body that is going to decay, that is going to be dissolved, there is a glorious body that awaits those who remain faithful. Therefore, remain faithful. That's where we are with chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Because you have these promises, because you can anticipate that wonderful and glorious transformation when the Lord comes again, a beauty a beauty ultimately that you will enjoy for all eternity that the finite mind cannot fully appreciate or comprehend, though we need to spend a lot of time thinking about it and trying to appreciate and comprehend it. That is reason enough to stand fast. And stand fast is, is in that present active imperative, which means keep on standing fast. Keep up your firm stand where? In the Lord, beloved. But go back for a moment to longed for and think about how, how intense this expression is, as I mentioned. It was used by the Hebrews to, to indicate something for which they had an especially close affection or attachment. Who is that in this case? Brethren. The brethren. What does that tell us about our attitude toward each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it tell us about where we should 
deeply desire to be upon every opportunity that we have opportunity to be with our brethren, with our brethren. Think about it with me for a moment. If indeed every member of the body of Christ had the same feeling for every other member of the body of Christ that Paul expresses here in this term longed for, then we could forget every sermon on attendance. We really just wouldn't have to deal with it at all. Because if the attitude of mind was as strong with every member of the body of Christ as it was with the Apostle Paul, a prisoner in Rome who longed for so deeply to be with his brothers and sisters at Philippi, if everyone in the body of Christ had that attitude, then sermons on attendance would be unnecessary, wouldn't they, really? Because at every opportunity, at every opportunity, unless I could not be there, that's where I'd want to be. I would want to be with my brothers and sisters, the people who are the dearest to me on this earth. Now, I left out family. That's right. Family members who are members of the body of Christ certainly are even more special because they're not only physical family, but they're spiritual family as well. But if a member of my physical family, my, my fleshly family, is not a member of the body of Christ, on Sunday night, do I want to be with that fleshly member or do I want to be with my brothers and sisters? I'll still leave that physical uh, relationship, that fleshly relationship, that blood relationship, because I value the blood of Christ that binds together brothers and sisters in Christ even more. In other words, I won't let anything interfere with the relationship that I should sustain to my brothers and sisters in Christ, which takes precedence over every other relationship. And chances are, if the members of my fleshly family understand and know that is the case with me, it might be that I will have an influence over them if they need to be influenced favorably that will ultimately make a difference with them. But if they don't see that in me, how can I create it in them? Not by my example, I can't. Now I realize I'm, I'm saying all this to those who are here on Sunday night. <laughs> and uh, maybe it needs to be said more on Sunday morning. But it's appropriate to say it when we come across a passage like this first verse of Philippians chapter 4, which reminds us of just how dear and special the church of our Lord was to the Apostle Paul, and especially this congregation that had done so much for him time and again. But even with that, and before we go to verse 2, and I was about to do that, I want to mention my joy and crown. I'm about to say that even with that, it did not keep him, his love for them, from addressing an issue that needed to be addressed. We'll see that in a moment in verse 2. But before we do that, think about the expression, my joy and crown. And let that expression remind us of something we've talked about before when we studied 1 Thessalonians. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you remember that when we studied 1 Thessalonians at chapter 2 and verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul wrote this to those brethren, 
whom he loved dearly, obviously. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Now keep in mind, he's calling the Philippians here in verse 1 of chapter 4, my joy and crown. He uses virtually that same expression in 1 Thessalonians to the Thessalonian Christians when he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. We talked about at the time that that is a passage among other passages, and we're now looking at another one in Philippians 4.1, that clearly tells us there will be recognition in heaven, that we will know one another in heaven. Why? Well, the implication is that the Apostle Paul with the Thessalonians, and I think it's also indicated here, if not clearly implied, with the Philippians, he anticipated as a part of his reward when this life ended, ultimately seeing his brothers and sisters at Philippi and his brothers and sisters at Thessalonica received into an eternal home of the soul and that he would rejoice over that and that it would provide for him an additional crown of rejoicing, if you will, using that term figuratively, obviously, and not literally. In other words, you are my joy and my crown. With the Thessalonians, he makes it abundantly clear that they would be his hope or joy or crown of rejoicing, and he gives the specific time when that would occur. When would it be? When time is no more in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Question, if he could not recognize the Thessalonians at that point in time, if he did not know who they were, how could he possibly rejoice over their salvation unless there was some recognition of them at that time. Therefore, recognition is implied there. We will know one another in heaven. And I believe that is a, the same idea that he is expressing here to the Philippians. My joy and crown. It ties in with the passage we've looked at in times past at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, where beginning there, Paul writes, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, I believe that's the day of, of a trial or tribulation, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Stop right here and think about the context. He's talking about converts. Those who are converted to Christianity are going to be tested. And when they are tested, it will be a trial by fire. And the converts will either hold up or they will not hold up. He goes on. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. I believe that's the very same idea that Paul is talking about right here in Philippians 4.1. That added reward of being with the Philippians, seeing them approved of God and Christ in judgment, and being his joy and crown, as with the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. Then he adds, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's been suggested, and wrongfully so, that this is a passage that teaches that you can be sincerely wrong in your religious practice all of your life, 
But as long as you are deeply sincere in that and believe that you're doing right, even though at the judgment you find out you were not doing right, you will still be saved because you were sincere. This passage teaches no such thing. In fact, such an interpretation of it conflicts clearly with every other teaching in Scripture. What this passage tells us is that if we work in this life to bring others to Christ and that convert or converts, if they endure to the end and we stand with them at the judgment seat of God and Christ and hear to them spoken the words, well done, good and faithful servant, we will have a cause for added rejoicing because we had a part in that conversion. If they're not there, we can't rejoice, obviously. That's a suffering of loss. But will the fact that they did not remain faithful affect our salvation as long as we remain steadfast in the Lord to the end? No. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. And that's what he anticipates in a positive sense with both the Thessalonians and the Philippians, that he looked forward to the time when they would add to his rejoicing. Well, that perhaps suggests a question. If we want to have that added joy, that additional crown of rejoicing, as it were, should we not be making every effort that we can to lead others to Christ in the hope that indeed we can one day stand with them and hear them approved and know that we had some part in leading them to Christ. I think the answer to that question is obvious, isn't it? We need to do all we can. We may spend all of our lives and never win one soul, but we need to spend all of our lives trying, at least, to win whatever souls we can. And it will bring about an added source of joy, if indeed we do. But there was a problem. Obviously, verse 2 reveals here, And the problem was between two women in the congregation. And so the Apostle Paul, as we said, as much as he loved the congregation, did he allow all of that affection that we've just talked about in chapter 4, verse 1, to cause him to simply ignore the fact that there was a problem between two of the members in the congregation? No. And why should that shock us? Because had he ignored it, then everything he said about loving them in verse 1 would have been a contradiction. Because as we've often said, if we truly love each other, we are going to try to help each other, including help each other overcome sin or disagreement or whatever the case was here with these two women. And your guess is just as good as mine as to what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche. We have no earthly idea. We don't know, as a preacher friend of mine said in some notes I have from him, if it was the color of the carpets or the padded pews or what it was. They didn't have those things back then. But was it a matter of a disagreement over, over something that was non-doctrinal? Was it a doctrinal disagreement? We simply don't know. But there was, there was a, a disagreement. And so he implored, he besought them, he admonished them, he exhorted them. All of that is contained in the meaning of that word that the New King James translates, implore. I'm exhorting you. I am encouraging you strongly, both of you, to be 
of the same mind in the Lord. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul believed that they could achieve that. Otherwise, he would have never implored them to do it. But it also, it also leads us back, takes us back to an earlier portion of this epistle. You remember in chapter 2 where we talked about unity as the Apostle Paul had written about it? There are some motives that these women would have for achieving the unity for which Paul pleaded. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We could read on, but isn't that ample motive that these women would have from this epistle to achieve what Paul was hoping they could achieve, and that is to be of the same mind? Think about all the motives that are held out. And then that final appeal for unity, remember in chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If these women would simply think about it and realize the motives that they had from the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul and came to their senses, as it were, they should be able to work everything out. But Paul enlisted the help of of others in this situation in chapter 4, verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, or true yoke fellow, as it is sometimes translated, the idea of being a co-worker, a companion, a yoke fellow, literally. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Who is the true companion? Again, your guess is as good as mine. We simply do not know. He does not identify him, but it is an individual here at least who, uh, in whom Paul had confidence and who was obviously a person of good judgment and wisdom. Otherwise, Paul would not have enlisted his help. Perhaps it was someone with whom Paul had been closely associated while he was at Philippi. Uh, remember, the letter is written to the bishops and deacons. They had elders, they had deacons, they were a fully scripturally organized congregation. But we simply do not know uh, who this was. We don't know who Clement was, except it was Clement. That was his name. But the name Clement was a common name, and therefore we do not identify him with any particular uh, Clement. And then the rest of my fellow workers. But notice this phrase whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. Well, that should sober our thinking as we see an expression like that and cause us to ask, is my name written in the book of life? And is there a, a literal book in which the names of those who were saved are recorded? No. Obviously not, but there is a heavenly record. In other words, there is a very clear awareness on the part of heaven itself as to who 
is on his or her way to salvation eternally. On the occasion of the sending out of the 70, as recorded in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 returned to the Lord, they were all excited about the fact that they'd been able to cast out demons and uh, even the spirits were subject to them and they were quite excited about the results that they had experienced as they were sent out by the Lord. But when the Lord addressed them, in verse 19 of chapter 10 of Luke, he said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then he added this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's far more important than the miracles they were able to perform. You rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, we can't cast out any demons. There are no demons to cast out. There are no miracles that are to be performed because that need has come and gone, and we have all that we need right here, and we have the providence of God in our lives. So we couldn't ever hope to rejoice as they did over the ability to do that, but we can, we can rejoice over the very thing that the Lord said we should be more concerned about anyway, and that is that our names are written in heaven, in the book of life, in the book of life. In other words, that God knows those who are his. And we are recorded, as it were, with God's blessing as those who are on their road on the road to salvation. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 12, and you see this expression once again. Over in Revelation 20 and verse 12, the passage there simply says, And I saw the dead, this is John's vision, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life indication in these passages very clearly that while there is no literal book obviously with names that are added and then erased there is a record that is kept as it were God the Lord knows those who are his and that should be a comforting assurance that is indeed far greater than any comfort that humankind can offer us and it should be reason enough the knowledge that our names are written in the book of life to rejoice as the next verse calls upon us to do rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice it doesn't matter what joy in this life may be taken away from us because of the actions of another individual or because of the loss of another individual close and dear to us. Whatever enters our lives that takes away our joy in those relationships that we have loved and appreciated, there is never a time when we cannot rejoice in the Lord. In other words, we can always be thankful that despite everything and anything else we've had to endure or will have to endure, that the promises of God are sure and certain. 
and that nothing, nothing can ever rob us of that joy. It will always be there. Otherwise, why would Paul say rejoice in the Lord always? He did not say rejoice always because outside of the Lord, you can't rejoice always. And in the Lord, you cannot rejoice over every external circumstance that befalls you. But even in that sorrow, there is a rejoicing because you're in the Lord that is always there. And, obviously, that can help you get through those times of sorrow. And finally, verse 5, let your gentleness, as the New King James translates it, moderation in the King James, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Gentleness. And there are various passages where this word is used, moderation, gentleness, reasonableness, yieldingness. Uh, it's the idea of, of a sweet, if you will, submissive spirit. You know, sometimes we may talk about someone, and I've said this too, you know, he or she has such a sweet spirit, just a sweet spirit. That's really the idea here, that the mindset is such that you are fair, you are reasonable, uh, you are not unreasonable, that your life is lived soberly and within the parameters that God has set, that you do not have these passionate outbursts, but that you are under control. Let your gentleness be known. He doesn't say wear your gentleness on your sleeve. Don't wear it in a way to be ostentatious about it. But let it be such a part of you. Let it be so characteristic of you that others cannot help but see it. And it is known to all men. And finally, don't lose sight of the fact that the Lord is at hand. Now, we said when we came to this verse, we would talk about some misapprehensions that uh, obviously some have had about this. The Lord is at hand. Was Paul writing, expressing a belief that he had that the Lord was about to come again? Does this have anything to do with the second coming of Christ? If it does, all that it would pertain to in that regard would be the Lord could come at any time. But I believe more strongly that what he is saying here, and this is the meaning of the word, the Lord is near. Near and about ready to come? No. But that the Lord is near. He's there. He is there to see what you do in a positive sense. He's there to see what you do in a negative sense. He's there. He's there through his word, obviously, to comfort you and to enable you to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's near at hand. And the word simply means near, either in place or in time. Not necessarily, though, in time. Is the Lord near in place to us? Of course he is. Of course he is. He is near to every one of us. He is ever-present. He is omnipresent. 
And he is always there, always there to hear and to answer the Lord God of heaven and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think with me about a passage that the Hebrews writer includes in his admonitions to the Hebrew Christians. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, he quotes a passage that I believe ties in very well from Psalm 21, or Psalm 27, he says in verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's Psalm 27 and verse 1. Go back to verse 5, the previous verse. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised that to Joshua. Joshua 1 and verse 5. I'll be there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I believe that's exactly what Paul had in mind here when he said, the Lord is near. Literally, that's the meaning of the word. The Lord is near. In verse 6 of Hebrews 13, the Lord is my helper. He helps me. He's near at hand. Let me make one statement about guarding against translations or so-called translations of Scripture that can lead people and have led people astray. I have in my library a copy that I've had, I guess, since 1973 when we lived in Birmingham when the Alabama State Baptist Convention in their 150th uh, anniversary or whatever were distributing paperback versions of The Good News for Modern Man also called today's English version. And uh, as I recall, they came and uh, gave us one of those uh, Bibles when we were living in Birmingham as they were distributing them. I looked tonight just to see how that translation renders the latter part of Philippians 4 or 5. It renders it this way. The Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. There's another one, the New Living Translation, that translates it virtually the same way. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. You tell me where that is in the phrase, the Lord is near or the Lord is at hand. That's an interpretation that is unwarranted and unjustified and anti-biblical because it's an interpretation that basically counters the whole of New Testament teaching about the second coming of Christ, including what Christ himself taught. You do not know when I'm coming. Be ready. The translators of the TEV said, we know, <laughs> because we believe that's what Paul was saying. The Lord is coming soon. They put words in Paul's mouth that should not have been put there. I say that to simply make you aware, if you're not already aware, that we have to be careful about something that calls itself a Bible because unless it is a standard translation, 
then it can indeed mislead us. And obviously that has occurred. But the Lord is near. He's near to help. He's near to assist. He's near to hear. And he is at hand in the sense that his coming could be at any time. And the scripture abundantly teaches that. Therefore, will you be ready for his coming? We don't know when it will be. It may not be in our lifetime. It might not be in a thousand more lifetimes. But he will come. And unless he comes before we die, we will die. And our destiny will be sealed. Tonight, if you have not prepared for death or for his second coming, then we plead with you to do that by expressing your faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, as the scriptures teach. And if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, we plead with you to do that now, as we'll pray with you and for you to a God who will forgive completely. Let us stand to sing as we invite.